Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Welcome to the Historic Racing News Radio Show. Welcome to the June edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show. And have we got a show for you this month. For the first time, we're going out on the first Wednesday of the month rather than the last Wednesday of the previous one. And I can also tell you that our Insight Special, which we've run periodically in the past, is now a regular feature. And it'll be broadcast on the third Wednesday of every month as well. So you get two doses of the Historic Racing News radio show every month from now on. Put it in your diary, first and third Wednesdays of every month. My name's Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined by the whole of the Historic Racing News radio team. Uh, We've got Joe Bradley, who'll tell us about the Donington Historic Festival, and we'll talk to uh, the event organiser, Duncan Wiltshire, about how he saw the event and some of the challenges, I think, that we might uh, expect in these present COVID times. Paul Jurd talks to the race preparation guru, Martin O'Connell, about the post-Brexit transport of racing cars in Europe. Uh, But we start with Jim Roller, who's been in Florida for what is known as the Racers' Concourse. It's the Amelia Island Concorde d'Elegance, to give it its proper title, but has many, many race cars on the show field. Jim. You're right, Paul. The Amelia Island Concorde d'Elegance is a special event. This year, the 26th annual gathering of car erotica and car nuts was another rousing success. For founder and chairman of the event, Bill Warner, it was a particular point of pride that the team had been able to keep the consecutive streak of charitable giving going despite more than a year of COVID-19 issues around the world. Bill, 26th annual, and you have done it again. How do you keep pulling off these great events, especially in these challenging times we live in? You know, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy around. Last show with Roger Penske was the last show for the world. And this is kind of stepping out of the box into a corrected getting back to normal world uh i'm thrilled to death the crowd on the field today saturday was just terrific we've sold out of tickets for tomorrow the world wants to get back to normality so i the ideas are you know a good six pack of warsteiner and and i i'll come up with all the ideas you want lynn st james the honoree this year i couldn't think of a better one how did that come about I'd known Lynn for years, and I, we were looking at it, and I said, you know, it's time to honor it. We didn't even know it was the year of the woman. just worked out that way. And, uh, no, I'm very pleased and honored to have her here, and it, it's, it's going to be a good good Sunday. Given everything that's gone on in the last 18 months in the, in the world, what has been the biggest challenge of pulling off two events? Uh, with it? Well, you, you're, you're one of the few people in the world that can say they didn't have an interruption. Well, we had to... Uh, 
we had to adjust to all the COVID rules. They kept changing up until a week before the show. For example, we couldn't get more than 300 people in the ballroom. Then went to 400 people. Then went to 500 people. And then we started thinking, well, do we restrict the tickets? No, we're outdoors. And then the mask mandate went away within a week. Well, it redefined everything we had to do. So we had been planning from from uh, 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 last January to March. We had planned on doing the show, but sponsors wouldn't sponsor anything where anybody was indoors. So we had to redefine everything. We were going to do it outdoors, and then the rules changed, and we came indoors. But it was like from March to now, every day was like Groundhog's Day, except everybody threw me a curveball the next day. So this has not been an easy year. Out on the field on Sunday, we're going to see Porsche 935s, UOP Shadows, uh KM cars, the Formula, the Shadow Formula One car. My head's going to be on a swivel. How do you keep doing it? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm like you. I've just loved cars since I've yeah. been a kid, since I pedal a tricycle. So, you know, I'll sit back and think, and like I say, get a good Warsteiner and sit down there and drink it and go, yeah, that's a good idea. So, I, I'm lucky that I have companies like Porsche that, who defer to me and and what the th- theme's going to be. You know, they're coming, what are we going to do? We're going to do 935. Oh, that's good. You know, what's that? I deal with a lot of younger people, and they, 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 they look on my, uh, my knowledge to assist them in, in their brand, and that's the important part. But, but as I grow older, our audiences are growing older, so we'll have to get, you know, newer and newer themes. Uh, we're going to do more NASCAR. We're going to do um, – Ray has done a wonderful job for me, and I tell you what, I couldn't ask for a better friend to handle it. So, no, we'll we'll work on the themes for next year. Any predictions for best in show this year? I never do that. Never. Don't put me on the spot. Someone say, it's rigged. It's rigged. No, no, no. Okay. Thanks, man. Thanks, Jim. Congratulations. Each year, the Concours honors someone from the motorsports world for their contributions to the sport. This year's honoree was the first lady of American road racing, Lynn St. James. Her successes on the track paved the way for many. Her racing career started behind the wheel of the Ford Pinto in 1973, but the savvy racer quickly climbed the ladder, winning SECA regional championships, and then her class in the prestigious 24 Hours of the Nürburgring in 1978. In 1985, she became the only woman to win an IMSA GT race solo at the Watkins Glen 500. Three years later, she set 22 close-course speed records at Talladega in a Bill Elliott-prepared Ford Thunderbird. Most important of those was breaking Janet Guthrie's record as the fastest woman at over 212 miles per hour. After showing that speed, she moved to the Indy cars with Dick Simon as a car owner and became the first woman to be named Rookie of the Year for her performance in the 1992 Indy 500. Lynn used that on-track success to help champion women's causes off the track. She has met with three U.S. presidents at the White House. She is the past president of the Women's Sports Foundation. She founded the Women in the Winter Circle Foundation Driver Development Program and the Project Podium Scholarship for Women. That's all part of her commitment to the next generation. In light of all that off-track focus in today's world, it was a thrill to see the utter joy she took in being reunited with her 1985 Glen-winning Mustang, one of 11 of her former cars in the show.
stranger. Lynn St. James, honoree at the 26th Amelia Island Concourse. How does that feel? It is unreal. It's, it's, it's like this is not really happening, but it is, you know, and getting in this car, getting in this Mustang that I won at Road America, my first pro win, made it so real. It just brought it all back. I mean, seeing these cars, yeah, I love all of them, but that first of something, and this was my first pro win, and and it, the place lights up when you put a V8 in there like that, you know. So it is, a, you know, I won the spirit um, of Ford, you know, the leader. I, it was, I've got, these are like never things that you put on. You know, Jim, you know me well enough to know how goal-oriented I am, oh, yeah. how yeah. I'm very specific about what I'm going to do. Yeah. These are things you never, yeah. ever expect or put on a goal list. So they're gifts. They're, they're absolutely blessings and gifts. So. Lynn, uh, your first win, you won endurance races. You set speed records at Daytona. You were Rookie of the Year at Indianapolis. I've always said that Janet Guthrie kicked the door open, but what you did is you held it open for everybody else. What is more important to you, your accomplishments off the racetrack as an advocate for diversity in this sport, or what you've done on the racetrack? Well, I can't say what's most important. I mean, for me, it was always about my performance. So that was most important, and, and it's the problem is they were a long time ago. <laughs> so as time goes on, the celebrating what others have done, not because of me, but where maybe I did help them a little, those now have more meaning. But at the time, 92, 93, 94, 80, you know, when I, after I started really doing the mentoring, um, it was still about get it done on the racetrack, Lynn. Um, and that's why I always did our program in November after the season was over. I could, you know, debrief what I've done for that year and then focus on them and then get them to go, okay, you go do your thing, girls, and I'm going back to work, you know. So I, I think now it is more maybe of the, of the uh, you know, to see the celebrate the others, but... This weekend has been about my celebrating me, and and I haven't done that in a long, long time. Yeah. And that's 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 hard to do for somebody like you who's goal oriented. You're, you you don't you don't look past. You look forward. Always look, always looking forward. You know, and this has caused me or forced me to not only look back but to maybe appreciate myself a little bit of what I've done. I've never really done that. Well, congratulations. I can't think of anybody that deserves it more. Thanks, Jim. Amelia Island has long been known as the racer's concourse, and this year was no different. A class aptly named Chevy Thunder thrilled the Bowtie Brigade. Duesenberg celebrated the 100th anniversary of its All-American win in the 1921 French Grand Prix. And also not to be missed was the 1934 Le Mans winning Alpha 8C. That car gave Luigi Canetti his second victory at the Sarth and a fourth consecutive for Alfa Romeo. More modern displays included seven of Don Nichols' shadow creations from Can-Am and Formula One, and that was only surpassed by this year's featured racer, the iconic Porsche 935. A huge turnout for the class was highlighted by the 1979 Le Mans winning Kramer K3 and the 1983 Daytona winning and dial-built 935 Longtail. The 13 cars on the show field would have made quite an entry in the late 70s grid at IMSA, so says longtime IMSA man Mark Raffoff. I mean, I believe we have the biggest collection of these cars ever in one place since maybe an IMSA Camel GT grid in 79 or 80, uh, where we, I think, had 15. But to see all these things in one place again, and not all from the same era, just completely different versions of the same platform is, is really cool. And I know a lot of people are 
soaking it in heavy because it's good memories. They made great noises. They spit fire. They did all the right stuff, you know. Perfect. What makes this event so special? Um, for me, it's it's the combination of racing stuff, racing cars from all eras, as well as sometimes eclectic other categories of cars. Um, 275 GTB Ferrari group. I mean, you just see different things every year that you just don't see in other shows in the quantity that you'll see here. You won't see two of them, you'll see eight of them. So you get a real good feel for a typical car or a type of car or a category of car, whatever you want to call it. And I think that makes it really unique compared to things like, you know, Monterey and Retromobile in Paris and other similar things. Um, it's not really a business show other than the buying and selling of cars at the auctions, but you just see a lot of really neat stuff all in one place, and it's not the same from year to year. Non-racing entrants dated back to the horseless carriage class and featured the 1895 Morris and Salmon Electrobat 4. Believed to be the oldest electric vehicle in existence, it dovetailed very nicely with the Taking Charge Parade, a rolling display of modern EVs from nine different manufacturers. The honored classic for 2021 was the Hispana Suiza. These cars were known for their elegance, style, and speed. The class ranged from the 1912 Hispana Suiza Alfonso XIII long wheelbase torpedo sport, which won the most well-preserved honors, to the futuristic André Dubonnet design 1938 Hispano Suiza Xenia. Simply put, Amelia has something for everyone, says NASCAR legend Ray Everham. This event has really become a star, hasn't it? It is, and I think that's honestly a tribute to Bill Warner and his passion for the sport uh, and the hobby. You know, Bill, Bill's an amazing guy, and his passion, his DNA, if you will, is in this show. And I think that that really carries through, and people feel that. You feel that, you know, that you know everybody on the field, they're just really passionate. There's so many different types of cars year after year. And for us motorsports guys, we've got that DNA of the motorsport, but Bill brings in hot rods and classics. And every year I see cars here on the field that I have only read about or heard about. So I don't know how he gets them here from all over the world, but this is on my bucket list every year that, um, you know, I, I have missed some pretty big races to be here. Amelia seminars are another not-to-be-missed tradition each year. This year's two panel discussions centered on two of the special classes, Chevy Thunder and the Porsche 935, the highlight of which was Kevin Jeanette's story about the secret behind how Don and Bill Whittington teamed with Klaus Ludwig to win the 1979 Le Mans in their Porsche 935. Now, the rumor is, Le Mans, Don Whittington carried a suitcase with $250,000 in it at the start-finish line of the start of the race because they said, if you win, we're not selling the car to you because Bill and Don wanted to buy the car. So unless you pay us, we ain't going to do it. If you win, it's our car. So Don went to the jet, came back with $250,000 cash in a Halliburton briefcase, and paid for it right there in front of everybody. It's bullshit. <laughs> that never happened. There was only one crew member from the Whittington gang that went over, and he went over two weeks early, that would be Jim Weber, so he could get a training on the K3. 
because they were going to own the car. It was a great myth, a great story. But the truth part of it is, that's the truth. The best part is how this car was able to win the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which was the best win for any Porsche 911-based car ever to this day. So how this car was able to win, it broke down somewhere on the track. It was the Molson straight. How do you get a car fixed when the injection pump belt is missing? There's no way to get the fuel source to the injector to start the motor. It's over. Let's be innovative here. They talked to Don, who is in the car and responsible for the win. As someone told me earlier, if you handed Bill Whittington a wrench, he'd try to chew on it. He wouldn't know that that was actually a tool to use on the car to repair it. Klaus Ludwig, I don't know. Maybe he had the talent, but he wasn't in the car. So you got to blame it on Don. So they figure it out. Don crawls in the car, takes the sheet metal off the motor, says the injection belt is missing. Don knew 935s because we had a slew of them back at the shop, but not the K3 yet. This was our first K3. So he says the belt's off the injection pump. What do you do now? Well, take the alternator belt off and put it on the alternator. Length is a little different on the injection. Did it once, the thing flipped around and broke off. That was it. The Kramer guys got to thinking about how could this be over so quick? We could win this race. So someone said, I got the idea. These guys keep asking me if I'm going to eat these baguettes at dinner time. I said, no, really, they're part of the story. The baguettes won Le Mans. I swear to God. Because what they did was, they said, how are we going to get an injection pump belt to the driver? We can't have a bird drop it over. They had rules, so they concocted this idea. Give a couple baguettes. Our driver needs to eat. He's been out here. He's been driving three and four hours. Okay. So they give him these baguettes. Now what's he going to do with the baguettes? There was a plan. So when he got the baguettes, when no one was looking, he opened it up, and there was the belt. <laughs> True story. True story. I swear to God. That is the injection belt and... In the other baguette was the alternator belt. And Don got the alternator belt on the car. It fired right up, made it to the pits, and won the race. <laughs> At the end of three solid days of car fun, there was lots of hardware to be given out. The Ritz-Carlton Best in Show Concours Trophy went to the Hispano Suiza H6B, shown by Jill and Charles Mitchell of Stewart, Florida. Just over 300 of the H6 cars were produced between 1919 and 1933. This car featured an aluminum overhead, 403 cubic inch straight six engine, and four-wheel power-assisted light alloy brake drums, which was an industry first. The Ritz-Carlton Best in Show Concord de Sport went to the Shadow DN4, shown by James Bartell of Key West, Florida. The car was driven in period by Jackie Oliver to the 1974 and final original Can-Am Championship. 
For a list of all the winners, you can go to ameliaconcor.org. Next year, the event will move back to its traditional first weekend in March. The show's charitable foundation has raised over $3.75 million for community hospice and palliative care, spina bifida of Jacksonville, and Florida First Coast Charities in 26 years of continuous giving. Paul, this is an event that each year continues to surpass expectations, and, well, this year, that tradition continued. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Now, Joe, you and I were both, along with along with Jim, part of the TV coverage for Amelia Island in 2019, which seems a oh, years ago now. Doesn't um, it just? But it is an amazing event, isn't it? It's an unbelievable event, and my my first ever visit there. Um, Tim Pendergast, one of the uh, my very good friends has been part of the organizational team uh, surrounding putting on that show every year. And I, I, you know what, having, having been to the event, having been part of the event, it's only then do I now understand what Tim actually does. I just thought he, was, <laughs> I just thought he read books all day and researched things and made phone calls and found cars. Um, certainly, looking back at 2019, Paul, um, the... The, the event honoree was Jackie X and just some private conversations that I was able to have just standing in the main arena which is part of the final hall I believe at the golf course um, and just sat, standing next to Jackie X for me and having a private just having a you know general chit chat about <laughs> this display of cars and I said to him Mr X I would never ever call him Jackie I'm not able to ever call him Jackie. Mr. Yeah. X, what, what does it feel like to see this is effectively your life there in front of you? And he just turned to me. You know how philosophical Jackie X can yes. be? He's a very, very deep thinker. And he just said, this will never happen again. It will never happen again. And I thought, wow, you know what? This, this, that for me just sort of pushed home and forced home just how important that weekend was. I think one of the things with all of that is that a lot of people will say, and I'll include myself in this in the past, will say, oh, no, race cars need to be on a racetrack. You don't park them on the 18th hole of a golf course. And there's an element of truth in that. But being able to get up really close and personal to look at, touch and feel these these wonderful cars is is really amazing. I mean, mm. Bill Warner, who who started and still runs the the Concours um, with his team, and as you said, Tim Pendergast, our very own Charles Dressing, who is the historian for the uh, for the Concours, they all and all the rest of the team do a fantastic job, and they're all real motorsport fans. It's a great one, and uh, yeah, I think you and I are both scrabbling to get back there when when circumstances allow. But we have here in the UK our own own event, which is, I mean, it's very much race rather than concours, and that is the Donington Historic Festival. And, Joe, you had the best seat in the house because you were in the commentary box, <laughs> uh, but there were some great races. We had some fantastic races. And, uh, you know, just to reflect on that weekend, 
um, I think what is what made the weekend perhaps even rosier was the fact that it was the first event that we'd been able to get to the actual an actual track, and being part of um, that event normally. Um, you, you know, you're in the commentary box, and you've got the best seat of the house, and you, you know you're talking about. You get, you become embedded in whatever race it is that you're talking about. But the thing that I've missed about not being able to do that at tracks recently, for obvious reasons, um, the thing, the biggest thing that you miss is when you stop broadcasting, you're then in the paddock, and you're then able to talk to the drivers and talk to the, t- uh, the car owners and be around the cars, and that's something that has been a big miss. So I I, I got the opportunity to do that ahead of schedule, um, as there weren't any spectators allowed at Donington. However, the next historic festival we've got, which is Thruxton coming up on June, the weekend of June the uh, 12th and 13th, spectators are going to be allowed. Um, at, at, and I think we'll talk about Thruxton uh, maybe closer to the uh, to the event because things are changing all the time, Paul. Um, for me, the highlight of Donington, if you would ask me, come on, Joe, what was the highlight of the event? Right, Again, I'll do that. It, come it, on, Joe, <laughs> tell me what was the highlight of the event. Being of an age that I am, you would probably think that the saloon car race with the likes of Capri's, Dolomite Sprints, uh, Rover 3.5s would have been possibly my my highlight of the weekend, but I've got to say that the Eamon Cup for GT40s was for many reasons the highlight of my weekend. It was the last race on on the Saturday, so we still had a full day ahead of us on the Sunday. But the sight, and more importantly, the sound mm-hmm. of a grid full, I think there were 14 cars in the field, a, a, a grid full of V8 GT40s. Um, literally, the ground shook as the as the cars left the collecting area. Uh, literally, the ground shook, and I was probably a few hundred meters away. And I, you know, the the place reverberates. Wow. It's so visceral. Um, and then we had such a fantastic race. We had, you know, the, the race was bordering on a British touring car race. It was so close. Brit- imagine British touring cars without the nudging. That's what we had. <laughs> And we even had Gordon Shedden. We even had a you know touring car champion uh, in, in the race, and um, the racing from the to all of the GT forties because more power than grip. You see, yeah, it's not it's not hard to achieve. Give the cars more power than they have grip, and you'll see them sliding and just see them floating through the corners. It was a great weekend, and uh, a round of applause to everyone at Motor Racing Legends uh, to actually be able to bring those grids together and uh, and put on what what turned out to be a fantastic event you uh you had an opportunity to do a bit of a, a debrief um with duncan wiltshire after the event yeah it was great uh, you know you never have, i never have time across the weekend like that and neither does duncan uh or richard grafton who's another part of the organizational team yeah. and you know maybe two or three sentences at the end of the day um, as everybody's tearing down, but it was great to catch up with Duncan. So, Duncan, the dust has settled now, or at least I hope it has settled on Donington Park. Um, and with a couple of weeks gone by, when I reflect back, I can't help but think what a fantastic event we actually put on at the Donington Historic Festival. What's, what's your reflection? 
Well, you know, Joe, I, 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 you're, you're so right. We are, we're still pinching ourselves, really. It, it was just magnificent. Uh, the, at every level, you know, the organization from MSVR, the guys in race control, um, Marshall's out on the track, but most important, the, the, the commitment from the, from the drivers and the, the teams. Just the turnout was awesome. You know, you spend months and months and months planning these events and, you know, ultimately the, the end product is slightly out of your control because it's down mm. to the guys on the track doing what they do. We had some fantastic racing. We had pack grids. You know, you were there. You saw it for yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we, we, we never be complacent. You know, D- Donington this year was, was an incredibly important meeting because obviously for us, it was the first meeting of, of the year. Um, mm-hmm. For a lot of drivers, I mean, for a number of drivers, is their first race meeting for you know, 18 months or more. Um, those who've not been able to get out in the last yeah. 12 months. Um, we've been through, it goes without saying, been through an incredibly difficult period. And yes. getting, um, you know, to get to get to get to that point of just being able to stage the meeting was um, was just a remarkable milestone in its, in its own right. You know, it's the 10th year yeah. of running the festival. And I have, I've got to say, head and shoulders, it, you know, it, we said it before, but that was the best yet by a very long way. That, that's interesting. And, and again, I, I had to be reminded it was actually the 10th running. It was like, really, you know, really, has this event been going that long? And, yeah. um, you, you know, you mentioned there the it's complicated enough to to create an event of such magnitude over two days. But I would imagine that that kind of organization, the operations and the organization that went into that were kind of doubly complicated and exacerbated by the current restrictions that we have. And I, I, I think you tick the boxes, though, with that decision to live stream. We've we've certainly had some really positive feedback and the the, the, the listeners and the, and the viewers have been really kind to us with regards to the coverage. I, I think you're right. I, I, it was a last-minute decision. Um, you know, from a commercial point of view, it's a double whammy. We we were absolutely expecting to have the public in at that event. Um, you know, MSVR had pulled out all the stops to put on a, a fully COVID-compliant uh, spectacle for the public, and those of us who are this close to the racing have got to remember that the you know, the, the the public and the spectators are as every bit as keen and desperate to get out and watch this stuff mm. as we've been to get out and do it. Um, so it was a really bitter blow when um, the government put out their clarification uh, a couple of weeks before the event that, that when they said no spectators at elite sport, what they actually meant was no spectators at any sport. Um, the results of which being the thing was put behind uh, to run behind closed doors. So as far as the racing goes, it doesn't have a great impact. But obviously, you know, to be blunt from a commercial point of view, that's really bad news. There's a there's a there's a great deal of revenue there for the venue, very much needed revenue, I'm sure, um, that uh, uh, that that wasn't uh, able to be achieved. And of course, by putting on the live streaming, we're actually adding to the cost because it's an expensive yes. thing to put on. But I've yeah. got to say, we, we we don't regret it for a second. It was the best decision to do that. Um, the, the the live streaming was done extremely well. It's it's been able to promote the event to a, a, a really huge audience. And of course, all the people who weren't able to get in and watch it were able to sit at home and enjoy it at, at their leisure and still can, of course. Yeah, and, and of course, the, those competitors and the people that were involved in creating the event were then able to go home and and watch it in the the you know the week <laughs> after the event and and watch themselves and um, yeah. and and what you know from a television spectacle uh, as well as being there all right we couldn't have spectators which was a shame but i think we we 
I would like to think, Duncan, we've opened historic racing up to perhaps people who hadn't even thought about coming to see old cars going round a track. I think, you know, we, we, we've got the perception from a lot of fans that we don't actually race these cars. But I think yeah. a, a race that comes to mind is the Yemen Cup for the Ford GT40s. I mean, that was bordering on being a British touring car race, literally, because we had Gordon Shedden right in the thick of it. And those guys were really not hanging about. I, I think you're right. I think, you know, those of us who do this racing, uh, you know, at, at a selfish level, you know, my own uh, experiences in the pre-war sports car grid. I think mm-hmm. there's a mistake that many people make is dismissing these cars as uh, as tourists. And um, I, I say to anyone, you you jump in the passenger seat with me in the pre-war grid and, and you'll come out a changed man at the end of that <laughs> if, you th- if you think we're pussyfooting around out there. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that coverage is – you're absolutely right, Joe. It's taking it's taking the, the exposure of the sport to a whole new level. And I, I'm, I'm sure that, um, you know, in some ways we've seen a glimpse of the future. I think live streaming is probably here to stay, certainly for the bigger meetings anyway. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I, I've – sort of asked myself this, what was the highlight of the two-day festival for me? And I, I, I struggled to actually find a highlight because there were so many. Um, if I've got to pick one for day one, it was certainly, as I've just mentioned, the GT40s, the, the Yemen Cup. Yeah. The, the second day, probably because of my, my age, the historic touring car challenge, I remember a lot of those cars, the Capris, the Rover TDI uh, 3.5s, I remember those cars in period, but the car that blew me away for the whole weekend was seeing the Curtis 500C out. (laughs) That was incredible. And and it kind of leads me on to asking this question from an operational sense from from you guys at Motor Racing Legends. Uh, Where do you start sourcing things like uh, the Curtis 500C? And for people who don't know what I'm talking about, this is a car that competed in the in the Indianapolis 500 in the mid-50s. And I think came sixth. You have to correct me on that. Mm-hmm. But that car, to, to actually see that car in the flesh, yeah. it should be in a museum. But no, it was being driven with some vigor around Donington Park. I mean, where where do you start from, by you know, to source the kind of grids that we saw? Well, that's a very good. That's a very good example. It's a beast of a car. You you just don't see a car like that out uh, uh, very often at all. Um, and you've got to be a beast of a driver to drive it. And the owner mm-hmm. will uh, will agree with me on that front. Uh, brave man indeed. Um, it's a very good question. Um, I, 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 my personal view is it's very hard to go and get the cars you want. What all you can do as an organizer is put together the playing field that 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 you hope will attract the right mm-hmm. cars. And I, I have to say, I know, of course, I'm biased, but I've got to say, over the 10 years of running the Donington Historic Festival, I think we've done a very good job of of doing just that. You know, the very first year that we ran the event, we had a Ferrari GTO turn up to race. Mm-hmm. And, and and if that isn't a measure of, 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 of success, um, uh, you know, we were pinching ourselves that we were so lucky to get the car. And we've managed to do that ever since. And Donington... The, the historic festival for years has, for a lot of drivers, has been seen as the season opener. And I know, you know, first of May uh, used to feel like an early start for the year, but of course, the, each year goes by, the, the pressure grows, and the, and the season gets longer and longer. And things like the Goodwood Members Meeting, uh, you know, when it was running in, in March, starts to stretch the season. And there's competition for these cars, so you've got to, you know, you've got to look after the drivers. You've got to give them. You've got to have a good circuit, which Donington does in abundance. Um, yeah. You've got to you've got to have really good organisation behind the scenes. People don't want to see that, but what they don't want to see is the 
um, uh, you know, is is an organizational mess. So it's it's taken for granted. You've got to do this properly behind the scenes. You've got to get the right people in. We we're blessed with yeah. a fantastic team uh, to to put all this together at all levels. Um, and um, uh, you know, the best thing on the planet, from our point of view, is word of mouth. So uh, you know, you want everyone mm-hmm. to leave the gate on Sunday night going. Oh, that was fantastic. Can't wait to come back next year. Yeah. Um, and fingers crossed, you know, we tend to do that. It was very difficult this year, though. The pressure was, I have to say, Joe, was off the scale because of what we've been through in the last 12 months. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, commercially as well as every other sense, we, 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 Motor Racing Legends, we've taken a great deal of time and energy over the winter in particular to just think very carefully about what we do and what we want to be doing. And mm-hmm. we, 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 you know, we, we took the opportunity to launch two new series with the Amon Cup for GT40s and the Royal Automobile Club Pall Mall Cup for the, the three-hour race for the pre-66 yeah. GTs and, and sports cars. Um, yeah. And, of course, last year we were asked by, by Jaguar themselves to, to take on responsibility for running the Jaguar Classic Challenge. And that's on top of everything that we already do. So, you know, if, if, if you say – what was your highlight of the weekend? It's a bit like asking a mother, which was their favorite <laughs> child. Um, yeah. Cause they're all equally important. And yeah, if, the, the Amon Cup was stunning, no question. Yeah. And the yeah. fact we, we, we had a, a turnout, what, what would have been a dozen cars, we lost one just, just the day before, given the fact that half of those cars are locked away on the continent and not to, able to get over here. We, we were so pleased with that turnout. It was stunning. Yeah. Really so, stunning. What was, so what, what were the, um, what was the process of getting cars from abroad to Donington Park? Was that, that, that I would imagine that was very complex. Yeah, and it, 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 it's it's a real fly in the ointment for this year, and it's going to carry on through the season, I think. Right. The um, we got the double whammy of COVID, and of course Brexit. Um, and it's easy to forget with with all, with all the pandemic challenges that um, uh, you know all the Brexit regulations have changed. All the teams and owners are trying to get to to grips with what that means, and it works both ways. It's it's as you know it's as punitive from going from the UK to the continent as coming back here, and you've got to be prepared to to, to sort of stick your neck out to make it happen. There's uh, there's bonds and there's boxes to tick and all the rest of it, which mm-hmm. you know there's a danger for the next year or two. It could make um, overseas racing look rather unattractive, which is a bit mm. worrying. Um, yes. uh, God willing, in the fullness of time, a better solution will come. But uh, I really take my hat off to the, those European drivers who, who 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 did jump through all the hurdles in order to get to Donington. It, it cannot have been easy, um, uh, and and it's fantastic. You know, we love the Europeans to come racing with us. Yeah, um, they bring so much colour uh, and spectacle, and we're, we're really grateful. We would have we would have been, you know, even on the GT40 grid, we would have been two or three cars down potentially if that hadn't happened. But um, and I have to. I have to seriously take my hat off to the guys at DK Engineering because they 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 were the catalyst for the for the Amon Cup in the first place and and to be fair to them the Pall Mall Cup as well um, great supporters of ours through sponsoring the, yeah. the pre sixty three GT and and it again uh, uh, they, they never wants to stand on their laurel it, they were really the catalyst for the um, for the live streaming um, yes it, it wouldn't yeah. have happened without their their support and commitment so you know I really take my hat off to them great guys. Yeah. Yeah, great partnership. And I would imagine that's going to continue, is it? Yeah, very much. Very much. I, I mean, you know, if, if for those who were lucky enough to be in the paddock, you'd have seen the, uh, the the commitment from DK, not just in things like the live streaming, but they, they brought a whole load of um, rather juicy stock from the showroom to put on display uh, in did, the paddock. It was indeed. brilliant. 
Just yeah, they did indeed. I, I, hopefully next year we're going to have uh, spectators and, and the sights yeah. and sounds of the Donington Historic Festival will, will continue uh, with a crowd. Um, you mentioned uh, regarding the live streaming continuing. Do you see that being a, a part of uh, the Motor Racing Legend Historic Festivals, that, the ones that you're behind? Is, is that going to be a, a feature? Because I'm sure our listeners are, are going to be wanting to know that. I'm sure they'll also want to come and visit us as well. Yeah, it's a, yeah, but that's the double whammy, isn't it? Do you, yes. you could give someone for free on their armchair what they should be paying to come and look at from a commercial point of view. But I, I don't think, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think, uh, um, you know, live streaming is a fabulous way of watching the racing. Uh, uh, but if you, if you know, it, it is no substitute for being there and feeling a GT40 driving past. Never mind hearing yeah. it. Um, you know, when 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 the when the air is beating against your chest, yeah. you can't replicate that on a TV screen. It's visceral, uh, isn't it? It's oh, it's, it's, just, it's a is. visceral experience. Just standing in that collecting area and watching those cars go out, <laughs> yes. you know, on, yeah. on low revs, the the, the oh. ground it literally rumbles. <laughs> it's quite, ground shit. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and that you know, you, you'd want to bottle that, wouldn't you? you yeah, I wish we could. Uh, but 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 nonetheless, so I think you know, they, they, I, I think. I, I don't. I don't see live streaming um, impacting on live spectating anyway. Um, I, I think they they both absolutely have their place. I think live streaming is here to stay. Whether uh, I mean we we to be frank, we're in discussion at the moment with regards to the Thruxton Historic coming up in in June. Um, again, we're just waiting to hear um, from Silverstone Classic what their plans are. But I I I I, I think. The answer is, you know, it's very early days for everybody. We're all still sort of grappling with the technology. Um, yes, it costs money to put this stuff on. But when you see the quality of the product that was put out on the live streaming from Donington, you know, you could argue that it's actually very good value. Um, and yeah. I, I, I say that as the person who was, you know, paying for it rather than yeah. uh, rather than making it. Um, I, 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 I think I, I hope it does stay uh, for the future. Um, I'm, I'm sure it will. So Duncan, looming large on the horizon is another historic festival for motor racing legends, uh, this time Thruxton. Um, I had the honour to be at last year's event. Um, I'm very much looking forward to be at this year's event. What have we got in store? Well, I yeah, thank you, Joe. I think Thruxton is one of the one of the real exciting little jewels. It's um, um, for historic racing. It, it's a it's a circuit that's been kind of hidden from view in many ways because the, the the venue is so restricted in the number of days that they can race you know it's very famously known for british touring cars and the likes but um we've been working to build the historic festival for the last i think three seasons now and um we were lucky enough actually last year in the middle of all the uh, the lockdown nonsense um th- to salvage thruxton uh, as one of the dates that we did manage to run and we had a fantastic time there. It, it, it's a wonderfully relaxed, um, old school atmosphere. They won't, they won't mind me saying that. It's not a derogatory term at all. Quite the opposite. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a wonderfully relaxed sort of throwback, which suits the historic scene incredibly well. And of course, it's a phenomenally challenging circuit. So we're very privileged to be allowed to run the historic festival there. And uh, you know, the guys at, uh, at Thruxton and Bark are, are, are brilliant in terms of uh, working with us and helping us to make it happen. But we've got a, um, you know, we've got a packed lineup. We've got two days uh, uh, literally rammed with racing. Um, we are uh, we're going to run the same format that we did last year, just 
uh, in terms of having all the grids qualifying and racing all in the same day, whichever day they happen to be on, just to make yeah. it be easier for people from the traveling. But we've got everything from um, the pre-war sports cars are going to be there. We've got the 50s grid with the uh, Royal Automobile Club Booker Trophy and, and Sterling Moss Trophy grid. Uh, we're going to be running our fabulous pre-63 GT grid, uh, all those early E-types and uh, uh, Aston Martins and such like, really uh, a, a real stunning grid that. Um, we've got a double header for our historic touring cars. So uh, everything from, uh, you know, from the 60s right the way through the 70s and 80s, the Group 1 cars, the Group 2 cars, uh, and all of the Group A cars right up to 1990. So um, it's quite a spread of... Uh, quite a spread of performance, I should yeah. say. And, you know, those cars at the front, round Thruxton, will be unbelievably fast. Yes. Uh, and a great spectacle to watch. Um, you know, a lot of those cars were built for that circuit. So uh, that'll be really, really exciting. Yes. And um, we've got, of course, the Jaguar Classic Challenge, um, second round uh, for the season. Um, and that's heading for a, for a really busy grid. Um, and on top of that, we've got Julius and the Historic Racing Driver club bringing uh, three of their grids to support the meeting and the real piece of resistance in terms of um shall I, dare i say the support races is the yock and rent trophy which is a, a one-off race that's been uh put together by uh, rob manger for for um 70s f2 f3 formula atlantic single seaters and uh, that's running as a double header that is a full grid of single seaters oh my goodness that's i'm a single stunning. I'm a single seater man through and through. And well, you're going to love it, Joe. Oh, I really am. I'm, I'm not going to be able to cope. That's what my worry is. I'm going to be a gibbering <laughs> fool or more of a gibbering fool than I normally am. Um, Your and, words. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, at this point, I'm not going to hex it, but at this, this point, we're going to be allowing spectators at Thruxton. Yep. It's going to be, there's still going to be one or two COVID restrictions, I believe. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what they are. Are you, have you been made aware, like wearing of masks and, and social distancing? Because of, yeah, uh, things change. Uh, things don't, are not due to change until maybe a week or so after Thruxton, I believe. So we might be where we are now. Yes, that, that, that's great. It's a very good question. Um, subject to further clarification from Motorsport UK, yeah. with the, the regime that we're expecting at the moment is that the, the, the public very much will be allowed uh, at the circuit. Tickets are on sale. They're, they're very welcome. Um, we do not expect um, spectators to be allowed into the paddock. Working areas, I think is the official title, will be yeah. closed to the public. Um which in terms of Thruxton means the infield. But then, to be honest, the viewing is on the outfield anyway, really. Yes, um, yeah. Whilst you, you're denied the spectacle of seeing the cars in the paddock, um, to actually watch the racing, you, you need to be on the outside. Um, and the other thing at Thruxton for this year, for the first time, we, we're going to be running um, a show called Land Rover Legends, which is a, a show that we've run for a few years, uh, uh, another venue. Um, and... Uh, this was something we were going to do last year and got thwarted because of restrictions. Um, so the, there's going to be a, a, a whole Land Rover Legends show, which is a sort of collector's world of Land Rovers. Um, so it's going to be a heck of a lot for people to watch at Thruxton. Mm. Yeah, that's going to be great. Uh, Duncan, you've certainly whetted my appetite. I'm, I'm, I'm all, I was excited before we had this chat. I'm even more excited and looking forward to Thruxton. Um, I will see you there, and I, and I hope that everyone listening at home uh, as also had their, their appetite whetted. Um, for people who can't get to Thruxton, uh, how is it looking towards uh, another live stream like we did a few weeks ago at Donington? 
Uh, it's under discussion at the moment. Right. Um, okay. The, 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 to be to be candid, the, the, the challenge with Thrust, it's, it is a much, you know, physically, it's a much smaller meeting by definition, yes. um, and it, 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 the economics don't look quite so easy at Thruxton to make yes. live streaming work. So it's in, I'd love to do it. No question. So, yeah. so the, the, the boring answer is watch this space. Okay. We'll leave it at that. And uh, we, again, I'm so excited for the Thruxton Historic Festival. Duncan, thanks very much for taking the time out to talk to us on historicracingnews.com. Uh, no, no, thank, uh, thank you for listening. Look forward to seeing you in the flesh. Great stuff. My likewise. My thanks, Joe. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Well, now it's time for our new bit of fun, and it's uh, it's called (laughs) Corridors of Power. And it works like this. Each month, we will choose a nicely contentious subject, and each of the three members of the team will make three nominations for a best of, and then they will make their case to me for one of those to go forward into the final. There'll be only one winner at the end of that, and that will go into... The Corridors of Power. What was that? (laughs) (laughs) This month, our contentious subject is Formula One colour schemes. And I'm delighted that the first cab off the rank is Jim Roller. Jim, um, I'm sure you've been giving this a lot of thought. Which is the first of your three nominations? Well, the first of my three nominations, I think, is the hands-down winner of our first quarters of power contest, <laughs> Your Honor. <laughs> it, it meets all the criteria of a good livery. It is distinctive. It is memorable. It stands out on the racetrack. And in this case, it was the first one that was dictated by corporate sponsorship. Previous to this livery, most of the Formula One liveries were based on the country of origin of the team. Green for England, blue for France, white or silver for Germany, white for the United States. This livery was the first that was dictated by color scheme. And that, of course, is Gold Leaf Team Logos. The garnet and gold with that distinctive logo is instantly, you just put those two colors together, and it is instantly recognizable in the motorsports community. It's also instantly recognizable in the uh, stick and ball world is the colors of Florida State University here in the United States. But more (laughs) importantly, it is, without a doubt, the most iconic, the hands-down winner of the liveries, and that is Gold Leaf Team Lotus. I rest my case, Your Honor. (laughs) Yeah, you're going in hard on this one, Jim. I can can tell. In Um, typical American fashion, guns are blazing. (laughs) I do have to take issue with you on something, though, because the, um, the Gold Leaf Team Lotus colors were introduced at Monaco in 1968, which yes, wasn't yep. the first race of the season. And no. the, the, the FIA had actually changed the rules that you could, or you no longer had to run in country's colours. But 
act, and everybody always says that that was the first one, but actually, John Love ran a car in the South African Grand Prix on the 1st of January, 1968, in Team Gunston, which was a, um, a South African cigarette company. They had a horrible orange and brown color scheme. But uh, Well, you've just helped make my case, Your Honor, because who remembers <laughs> that? <laughs> the next one that you uh, you have put on your list is the Ferrari Formula One colors in 1975 and 1976. Well, and there you go. Going back to, <clears throat> pardon me, The uh, this was uh, very subtle with uh, some Marlboro uh, hints, but it was distinctively Italian, red, white, and uh, green. And the this was the high airbox era. And, of course, uh, the red base of the car with that white tall air box with the with the number on the side of it again uh immistakable don't even need to see the number if you see the car the helmet you know who it is yeah absolutely with that and i i think that the way that they changed it in 1976 because of course the the tall air boxes were were banned at the end of 75 and that they had those those air inlets down the side of, yes. the, of the cockpit, which they picked out in white, which was so sexy. It was it was absolutely lovely to see. And, of course, that whilst there were a couple of hints on, on the driver's uniforms about Marlborough and, and things, there was no actual sponsorship on the Ferrari at that time. And I think, if I'm yeah. right in saying that um, the... The red that Ferrari used at that time was a different red from the color that they used once they had Marlboro stuck all over the motor car. Yes, and- you're absolutely right. It was Ferrari red. But I do believe that there was the Chevron on the rear wing. Now, I may be mistaken about that, and I'm sure one of our listeners will be able <laughs> to correct me on Twitter if I am. But I think in, in – and not in that 75 – but I think that was the first step towards the Marlboro, because uh, you're absolutely right. It was the it was more personal services contracts with the drivers, so they were all kitted up in Marlboro uh, mm. clothing and patches and that sort of stuff. But I think that uh, the first steps that Marlboro took was the was the Chevron on the rear wing. Right. Okay. Yes, I bow to your greater knowledge on that one, because uh, um, certainly it wasn't in that. Um, almost an orange color that we saw in the in the later years of the Michael Schumacher era, right, which right. was a, a very different color, and it's again different now. But uh, yeah, okay. So the uh, the Ferrari of 1975 and 1976 is uh, is your second choice, and I was surprised that you chose the Saudi Williams as uh, as your third choice. So tell me about that. Well, I think that one was purely emotional because I remember seeing Alan Jones at Watkins Glen in that livery in 1980, and I just, I'll never forget that that car. The car was absolutely spectacular, and I just think the white and the green um, just set that car off beautifully, and I just, that's one that will always carry a, a lot of weight with me because I just, that was probably, that would rank 
probably in the top three of my all-time favorite Formula One cars. So the delivery was just literally, in this case, the icing on the cake. And um, it is absolutely stunning to me. Um, the, just the contrast, the white, the green. It was simple. It was uh, uh, much like uh, you'll hear from Joe Bradley later as he weekly tries to contend uh, against my uh, Gold Leaf Team Lotus uh, winner um, <laughs> that that the uh, Brava Martini livery was was but, but it's along those same lines. It's simple. It's uh, uh, almost understated uh, to a point. Yeah. And 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 I just that that was uh, absolutely my absolute favorite. Of, of, it's of, it's of strange, era. isn't it? That the I mean, looking back on it now, the FW07, the first. Yep. The first of those those ground effects cars was pretty much a copy of the Lotus seventy nine. Um, oh, I mean, and <laughs> no, most people will will accept that. And yet, the two different color schemes, the two different liveries of those cars, make them look utterly different. Don't they? That that's exactly right. That is that is that is unbelievably spot on. That is the yeah, you nailed that. Yep. Right, so we have but a. Can I throw? Can I throw in one that's not a nomination, but one that I will never, ever forget. Go on. And that was Michael Schumacher. Uh, I believe it was at Monza in uh, two thousand and one when the Ferrari appeared with the black nose mm-hmm. after the uh, horrible events of September eleventh. Um, I'll never forget that. I thought that was one of the coolest things. Uh, I thought that was a, a, a wonderful statement by the Ferrari team and community. And uh, as an American, I'll ever be grateful for that. But that was uh, uh, that it wasn't it was a one off special livery. And it, it that one really tugged at my heartstrings. Uh, and so thanks to the Ferrari folks for that. Well said, Jim, because I think you're absolutely right. It was just a black nose and. And they could have done so much more with, you know, writing on it or or even the American flag or something. But that would have been just moving into tacky territory. Yep. And that they they just did it right. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, no, it's it's uh, it's not enough of a livery to to count for our corridors of power. But nonetheless, yes, I think I think you're absolutely right there, and and well said for all that. So you've. You've put me on the spot with some some good ones here. I, I think the the Saudi Williams one. I'm going to discount. Yeah, okay. I'm going to discount for one reason, which is that I think we all have the choices that we make emotionally, um, and that yeah, like you, I I can remember that livery. I was there. In oh, I can't remember when it was, but when Claire Regan's only won the British Grand Prix in the um, in the Williams, and yeah, fantastic stuff. If I'm honest, it doesn't make my heart beat too much faster. Um, I think as we go through corridors of power, and we've got lots of different subjects to talk about, anything with a Ferrari badge on it is always going to be up there and I know that we're going to have lots of, <laughs> lots of things for, for almost everything but um, Ferrari 75 and 76 yes um, of course forever entwined with 
Nikki Lauda's accident and and everything that went with that. Um, but the one of of your three choices that I'm going to put forward into the final Jim Roller is the Gold Leaf Team Lotus. Um, and I don't think that's going to be a surprise to you. Um, change the world, change the world of Formula One, um, as well as being sexy as hell when it came down to just the look of the thing. Um, so, Jim, uh, I'm going to put forward Gold Leaf Team Lotus as your finalist for the Corridors of Power Formula One colour schemes. The leader in the clubhouse. <laughs> and, and frankly, I, I, you know, if you get tight on time, you don't even need to do the others. Just, you know, <laughs> I'm telling you, there's your winner. Just go straight in, straight in with yep. that. Yeah, I, I like your confidence. To the trophy presenting. Yep, <laughs> I yep. do like your confidence. I think, uh, and, and I have to say that it's going to be a tough one to beat. So, Paul Judd, tell us about uh, what I'm sure has been a very difficult decision. Uh, your choices. Certainly. And um, I always think there's a lot to be said for simplicity. It's possibly why you have me on this podcast, actually. And surely one of the most <laughs> iconic liveries in Formula One history has to be that worn by Lotus cars from 1963 into 1968. British racing green with that broad yellow stripe from the nose to the cockpit. It first first appeared on the Lotus 25 of Jim Clark, but oddly not teammate Trevor Taylor, at the British Grand Prix of 1963 with Clark winning the race and going on to take the World Championship with seven victories from 10 races that season. From then on, it was a feature of Lotus cars right up to the three-litre era and the Cosworth DFV-powered Lotus 49, bookending the season's running that livery with Clark winning at Kyle Army in the opening race of the 1968 season, the last time they wore the green with the yellow stripe and his final Formula One victory. Right. The colour scheme really does hark back to the days when race cars ran in national colours. But but with a twist, and that yellow stripe I instantly identifies the car as a Lotus. So often taking the race win with the blue helmet and white visor of Clark, finishing off what has to really be a classic colour combination. The yellow grew to include the nose of the car from the unsuccessful Lotus 43 BRM of 1966 and was a feature for that game-changing Lotus 49. It's almost the perfect livery. It's totally distinctive, works on a variety of cars, and is one that still resonates almost 60 years later. Clark Mm. won both his titles in that livery, 19 Grand Prix, and race after race, the Green Lotus with the yellow stripe would have been coming round at the head of the field. Surely the golden days of that famous team and its favourite son. Oh, that's an interesting one, Paul, because um, let me ask you, first of all, um, yellow wheels? Yeah, I was never a fan of that. And I have to say, I delicately did leave that out, to be quite honest. <laughs> You're not going to get away with that, mate. <laughs> no, no, no. But come on, this is this, this, this was the livery, the Cosworth DFV war on the Lotus 49 when that game changer appeared, basically. Yeah, yeah. And it was also, you know, the, the final livery, really, before suddenly the team became Gold Leaf Team Lotus and we entered the era of sponsorship. Yeah, you know, we've, it, we've heard it, from Jim about that. And, exactly. And a, an element of purity left the sport. It did. And, and I think it's it's worth mentioning that up until the beginning of, of that year, that it was a requirement that you ran in your national colours, um, that you could you had to run in green, for example, for, uh, for Great Britain or England? I'm not sure. Great Britain, I think. Um 
but it could be any shade of green. So you have things like the UDT Laystall cars, which were in that, um, what was known at the time as British Racing Cardboard, which was that sort of very pale green, <laughs> um, and went right the way through to the, the very dark green of BRM. But you had to run in green. And that, yeah, the Lotus the Lotus bit was just making the most of that. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating one, Paul. Um, what's your second one? Well, you just have to say Marlborough McLaren, you're instantly visualising my next choice. Those broad red and white bands of colour going along the car. A visual identity so strong that the bare colours alone without the sponsor's name were enough to let you know what you were looking at, which was very useful when they actually ran at countries where tobacco advertising was banned. Mm. So Marlborough were, were a long-time sponsor. The first McLaren in their colours was the M23 back in 74 when Emerson Fittipaldi claimed his second title. And the, in, Marlborough had been seen on the BRMs before that and also on uh, Frank Williams's cars, the ISO Marlborough cars in 74. So there was no shortage of exposure for the company in Formula 1. But really, the livery I'm talking about first debuted in 1981 when that reconstituted McLaren with Ron Dennis at the helm. And they brought out the MP4-1. Admittedly, the livery did run on the M29F. They ran briefly at the start of the season. But it's that MP4-1, the first carbon fibre car, the John Barnard car. And uh, again, another game changer for Formula 1. And those red and white cars are just really, you know, what you mentally, I think, project and see in your head when you think about the 1980s. The red and white cars saw titles for Nicky Lauda in 84, two years the next two years, Prost won the titles in the tag, tag Porsche. And then in 1988, the team cemented the memory of that red and white Marlborough livery with taking 15 wins from 16 races, with Prost and Ayrton Senna acting out one of the most intense team rivalries in Formula One history. Senna taking the title after drop scores, even though Prost actually outscored him. And, uh, you know, Prost then had his revenge the next year, the first year of the atmospheric engines, but... This is the defining image of Formula One, I think, for almost everybody. It's those Marlborough McLarens at the front of that com- really, really competitive field. And, you know, maybe, let's be honest, with that distinctive yellow helmet of Senna in the cockpit. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, that, the, yes, the, the Marlborough livery carried across many different cars. I'm, I'm interested that you've, you've chosen that particular one. And, yeah, I, I love your point about the fact that they ran without the the Marlborough wording on the side of the car, and yet it still worked. I think it, that's, it was on, yeah. on occasions they replaced it with the word McLaren, and then they got really cute and would actually replace it with a barcode. Yeah, <laughs> and who who ever knows what that barcode said? Um, but that's that's good. And uh, what's your third one? I thought I'd go a little off the wall and a little less obvious. And uh, this final livery was really only worn for one season. But I think it's memorable for the impact the team that wore it had. And I'm talking about the green and blue of the Jordan 191 on that team's Formula 1 debut season back in 91. You know, one of motorsport's great characters. Eddie Jordan had run teams in British Formula 3, Formula 3 3000, even winning the title in uh, 1989 with John O'Lacy's camel-backed arena. Sorry, camel-sponsored rather than camel-backed. I think you're giving the wrong (laughs) picture there. (laughs) And uh, a step up to Formula One was a step up to Formula One was really the obvious next move for the team. And uh, that camel sponsorship was supposed to be coming with them, but actually fell over and fell down quite late. And uh, Jordan stunned everyone when they unveiled the 191 at the February press launch with a car mostly in green. 
that not only reflected Jordan's Irish heritage, but matched the colours of that of new sponsors Seven Up, and also was actually the house colours of some of the secondary sponsors, such as Fujifilm. And uh, you know, as a design exercise, it must have been a graphic designer's dream. Yeah. No legacy livery to carry over, so nothing to pres- no, no worries about preserving team identity or anything like that. A complete black canvas where contrasting shades of green and blue with blue on the lower body and the outside of the side pods. Maybe you know a little bit of a link there to the hills and lakes of Ireland, and it just worked. It was a beautiful looking car, beautiful looking livery, and um, yeah, it was it was a memorable season I think for them. The car was a strong midfield runner because um, Eddie Jordan's you know famous wheeler dealering had somehow got him the Ford HB engine rather than the Cosworth DFR that some of the other teams were using, and he had Bertrand yeah. Gachot and uh, Andrea De Cesaris in the car, and uh, you know they they were good enough to come fourth and fifth in Canada. And then the season got a bit odd. <laughs> Good way of putting it, Paul. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, you know, you don't really expect one of your drivers to get banged up by the beak halfway through the season. No. Nope. Do apologise. There's a big rumble of thunder in the background. And um, as I say, that led to an urgent hunt for a new driver. And uh, Eddie Jordan slotted a promising young German lad who'd been driving in sports cars into his car for Spa. And... Uh, he qualified seventh, really showing how good he was and how good the 191 was. And uh, Michael Schumacher had arrived in Formula One. And, and Formula One was never never the same again. No, alas, never would, not, neither would Jordan, actually, because Benetton promptly came in and swooped and stole him before the next race. And so for the rest of the season, it was Roberto Moreno and Alex Zanardi in that car. But it was a dramatic year for Jordan. You know, they finished fifth in the constructors' points, and it was a year of drama, politics, and flashing flashes of pace. You know, sadly, by the end of the year, they had another sponsor for next year, and that green livery was gone. But uh, you know, I think it's remembered, and it's one of those things that crops up on an awful lot of lists of best-looking Formula One cars. I don't think anybody would argue with you there. And it's yeah, it's a, a fascinating tale. And the people often talk about Benetton swooping in and and stealing Michael Schumacher from. The uh, from the Jordan camp. If you read Eddie Jordan's book, they wrote a very large check to get uh, Michael Schumacher out of contract with with Eddie Jordan. And that let's face it, he made an awful lot of money doing that with an awful lot of people. So it's uh, yeah, no surprise there. But interesting choices there, really. Um, Green and yellow stripe on the Lotus. Um, Yeah. You know you want to. (laughs) Listen, you know we've just been through this degree of pressure from Jim Roller, who who said there is no point in anybody else saying anything. So I'm I'm not going to give in to any pressure here. Uh, Green and yellow stripe on the Lotus. Yes, it's iconic. um, But it's not very different from anything else that uh, that came about um the marlborough mclaren i was i was interested to see where you were going with this one because obviously the the marlborough livery on the m23 for example the texaco marlborough livery was very very different it wasn't until we got that day glow finish on the uh, on the as you say the ron dennis um, Project Four versions. Yeah, they, they almost tidied up the livery, I think, at that point, and it became those bands of car, of colour which were so memorable. 
yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think that um, I think that you know it's it was bringing it up to date. And let's face it, I think Ron Dennis was very keen to put as much distance as he could between him and the the old style McLaren management. So uh, yeah, I understand that. And it's an interesting one because it's it it's kind of always been there, but and almost to the point that you didn't really recognize or didn't notice it was there, but it is without doubt an iconic, iconic livery. The, the Jordan 191, how much of that was a really good looking car and how much of it was the, was the livery? That's a, that's a difficult one. Uh, that's a little like saying, is that a, you know, would you, would you prefer your attractive lady nicely dressed? Isn't it though? I'm not going down that road. <laughs> <laughs> you are leaning against an open door at that point, Journey. <laughs> um, you know, I think that the one that I'm going to put forward to the final, it's going to be the Marlboro McLaren that uh, we're going to take forward to the final. So they, uh, we've had two of the team's choices for the corridors of power and please don't forget to let us know what your choices would be for the greatest formula one liveries of all time you can let us know on twitter at hist racing news or you can find us on our facebook page historicracingnews.com joe bradley you've uh, you're a man who has an eye for a good livery and... <laughs> you said livery there <laughs> but uh, what's what's your choice well, my three choices are completely and utterly self-indulgent. And when I was posed the question, I, I had a, a long think about it. And the three that I came up with that were my three finalists are, are from the era of Formula One, where, where, where I pretty much discovered it. So it's, it, 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 it might be a bit odd to the younger listener to hear what I'm about to say. Um, at the first one, and this is in no order of preference, um, so the first one for me was the very minimalist Tyrrell Blue. The basic blue Tyrrell with the big white elf livery from the petroleum sponsor uh, that was on those cars at the time. It kind of first appeared in 1969 through seventy winning the world championship in 71, winning the world championship in 73. And it, when I think about that livery going on to 74 with the, the Jody Schechter car, the name Schechter, that was a name that was, that's just what a Formula One driver's name should sound like, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, Schechter. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the Tyrrell 07, it, it then continued with the P34, the six-wheeler, but it was really that time around the 1973 season with Jackie Stewart in the O5 5 when he, he won the World Championship that year. That kind of minimalist uh, look, the, li the livery was just basically blue with the, the elf lettering in big white letters. And it may have had a few other very small um, decals uh, spread about the car, but predominantly it was just a blue Tyrrell. And Tyrrells should be blue. And when they ceased to be blue, I kind of lost a bit of affection for them. Um, I know what you mean. I think yeah. uh, with the 
with the P34 when it went from being all blue to it had um, national travellers checks, didn't it, on the, yeah, first on the top city. part of it um, in yeah, the first and second iteration. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was down to funding, wasn't it? It was down to yeah. the sponsorship of the first National City Bank um, that the, the cockpit area became white. Um, but so, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the, the blue Tyrrell, the Tyrrell blue. Um, the the second choice, um, I don't know what to go second or first, uh, second or third with this. But I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go the black and gold John Player Special. Oh. Um, when this car appeared in 1972 at the, in the hands of Emerson Fittipaldi, who went on to win the world championship, that was, again, one of the very first Formula One race cars that I remember seeing. All right, I do. In color, let's add. I forgot to add that bit. Yes. <laughs> Prior to that, things were in black and white. <laughs> um, so, you know, the, 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 the colors of the cars weren't really sort of something that I remember, but certainly early 70s they are you know and when you think about that black and gold livery of the john player special that went through the mid 70s right up until 1978 you know the lotus 79 the lotus 78 in 77 that's an old always an odd one to get your head around it was the lotus 78 and 77 and then in 1978 <laughs> it was the lotus 79 i don't yeah. know why why he did that but he did um all the way through to andretti's world championship year um but for me, it was the Lotus 72 wearing that livery. And they went a little bit off the rails in 1974 when it wasn't gold on black. It was more yellow on black. Mm. And the reason for that was because the TV cameras found it very hard to, to pick up the gold livery on the cars. So they went to yellow um, purely so that the, 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 the John Player Special uh, logos would stand out. Um, thankfully, they went back to the gold. I don't know whether the different cameras sort of evolved in the 70s. But when you think about the drivers who drove um, in that with that livery, you know, the Jackie Ickes, Fittipaldi, Ronnie Peterson, Mario Andretti. <laughs> um, yeah. that, you know, that I think that sort of says it all, as well as the aesthetics of what we're talking about. It's just, you know, at a time when drivers didn't change their helmet colours, when, you know, Mario Andretti's helmet stayed the same throughout. Emerson Fittipaldi's, the, the red on black, stayed throughout. And then the, the the iconic, distinctive Ronnie Peterson, the blue with the yellow peak, um, the yellow, which was a clip-on peak on that on that helmet. Um, those helmets in, in those cars, in the John Player specials. And remember, it was a big thing for Colin Chapman because... He lost his identity. The Lotus lost their identity. They yeah. became John Player Specials. As, not, as Andrew Marriott will tell us. <laughs> and Andrew Marriott's got some great stories about how that came about. And uh, Colin Chapman, I think, had to be had a, had to have a, an arm up his back to, uh, to 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 agree to that, and you can understand why. Um, so that that's my second choice. And again, it's like choosing your favourite child, isn't it? Um, actually, that's quite that's easier than doing this. Um, <laughs> Um, I think that my overall favourite livery on a Formula One car is this. It's the Martini Brabham BT45B, or the BT44B, I should say. The Martini went on to be the BT45 and the BT45B, but 
1975, it was white and the Martini livery was on white. The Martini livery stayed with the Brabham team, but because of the Alfa Romeo engines from, I think, mid-74 onwards, um, they went to a red. So the Martini livery was on red. And that never really did it for me in the same way. No, so it was, only, it was only that time in 1975 when the Brabham BT44, which had, which had been the car Brabham used in 1974. However, that was just a completely plain white livery. There wasn't anything on the car. And that same car evolved into the B iteration and it donned the martini, you know, the, the, the red, blue and uh, striping that Williams brought back fairly recently. I'm not going to hazard a guess as to when that the Williams... Uh, brought Martini back to Formula One. But that the Martini livery on any car, let's not get into sports cars, because it's an iconic livery in sports cars as well. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a different show. It is. It's absolutely, Paul. It's a podcast in itself. And and then I look, and then I think back, and it's doing, it's doing the rounds on some social media. It's the old Martini Rosso. Uh, is it Rosso or Rossi? Or Rossi. Martini Rosso was the drink. Yeah. Um, Martini Rossi, a television advert. At the time, uh, that was on our TV screens. I would, I, I, I can't say this for definite, but it must have been a factor. It must have been a factor in influencing my young mind and seeing the imagery portrayed, or you know, in in a in a advert, advert break in the middle of Coronation Street, and there was you know Carlos Reutemann and Carlos Pacci in their white. Brabham BT44B with Martini livery going around Monaco or wherever. Um, that must have been a real made a, it. It obviously made a massive impression uh, because I've got you know I've still got a, I'm sat now with about two meters away. Paul is the 112 scale Tamiya model of that car in that Martini livery. It's something that you know it for me is possibly probably my ultimate favourite. So my ultimate favourite out of my three choices has got to be the Martini livery. But I really am fond of the others for Thank all you. sorts of other reasons. Thank you for that, Joe. Um, it, uh, it once again makes my, my decision very hard. <laughs> as, as we know, what we're doing is looking for one from each of you, and then yeah. those three will go forward to the final. Um, yeah, let's let's think about this. The the Martini livery, yeah, um, and of course the the BT forty two Brabham was again a a good looking car um, and looked great in the white. Absolutely agree with you about the red. It lost everything when it mm. went to red. I don't think that that really worked very well at all. If I'm honest, yeah, um, yeah I agree. It was it was messy and it was it was just one of those things. The I, I think one of the things for me with with all of this is that you've all come up with stuff which is thought provoking because I certainly wouldn't have put the Tyrrell down as being an all time great livery, but thinking about it, it is, hmm. and that you know you you just need to see that. The, the white crash helmet with the with the tartan stripe around it and and the the blue Tyrrell with elf written on the front and it's yeah it mm. just takes you back to a, a great time jps um i mean for me or 
to go back. I haven't asked anybody to identify a particular car with a particular livery. And that for me, probably the Lotus 79 um, in JPS livery is just one of the most beautiful race cars of all time. But um, I think the, the other thing with the JPS livery is that it made everybody very aware of liveries that mm. it kind of changed the rules for everybody else and that whereas up until then you had your race car and you know that your racing team's color was yellow and somebody came along and said you know i i make suntan lotion can i stick this sticker on your car and i'll give you five pounds and they and you said yes and you ended up with a yellow car with quite a few stickers on it and it was it was actually the whole JPS thing where not only was the John Player Special picked out in gold and then yellow and for yeah. a time it was in a very pale beige um, and then back to gold again. But all the other co-sponsors were also in gold as well. So the Goodyear logo was in gold yes. and, and, and everything else. And so for that reason, Joe, I'm putting JPS yeah. into the final as your one to, to look forward to. Well, let's look at the finalists for our first ever edition of the Historic Racing News radio show, Corridors of Power. I'm excited, Paul. Do I win anything, by the way, if you choose mine? Um, you you win uh, a night out with the supermodel of your choice. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah I'll, uh, I'll be in touch about that separately. <laughs> let's... Uh, Let's look at the finalists. Uh, Roller has put forward the Gold Leaf Team Lotus livery. Jody has uh, has championed the Marlboro McLaren, um, particularly in the Project 4 livery, MP4 livery. And Bradley has come up with JPS livery as seen from the Lotus 72 onwards. And I have to be honest, it's uh, it's very very tough to separate mm. those. They're uh, they're all remarkably good cars. Interestingly, two of the three are on Lotuses, uh, which I don't think it tells us anything. Uh, it is it is a conundrum about some of these cars, which perhaps were good looking cars, and you'd have to have worked very hard with a livery to make them look bad but nonetheless I think that's that's true I'm surprised that uh, that nobody went for UOP Shadow although uh, Joe I think you you had that in the frame at one stage yeah it did that was a very close one um, and it was between the UOP Shadow or the Tyrrell Blue um, again it was a ve- the, the, the UOP Shadow livery is a very minimalist livery isn't it and I'm talking about the 1975 Livery again. Seventy-five seems to be a, an iconic year for me. Yeah, yeah, for, um, you. for, for um, Formula One liveries. Yeah, but, uh, yeah su- that was close. Surprised, I'm surprised nobody went for that. I'm, I'm slightly surprised that uh, that nobody went for anything from Benetton because they had some pretty remarkable liveries in their time. Now that that mild seven livery, which uh, which was very much of its time and the united colors of benetton of course was was another one um red bull that 
I, I think Red Bull almost falls into the category that I was just talking about in terms of the Marlboro livery on the McLarens that I don't think that you see it much anymore. You know, it's it's mm. there and it's there in the biggest letters they can probably get away with. But you don't really sort of notice Red Bull livery anymore, which is interesting. Another one which I expected to come up was perhaps West on the McLarens, because that was a, a good-looking livery, and that's silver and uh, and and black and grey. Um, the Essex Petroleum colours that were on the Lotuses post-JPS, they they were all all very much there or thereabouts. Let us know what you think. Um, go to go to our Facebook page or go to at Hist Racing News and let us know what you think. But it's now time, ladies and gentlemen, to announce the winner. And the winner of our first ever entry into the historic racing news corridors of power is... Goldleaf Team Lotus. And that's Jim Roller's choice. Goldleaf Team Lotus is the first entry... They changed the face of Formula One forever because that was the first ever bit of sponsorship in Formula One by a mainstream team. And incidentally, it looked fabulous too. The Historic Racing News Radio Show. Paul Judd, now you and I have talked in the past about the, uh, the changes post-Brexit to regulations about taking cars from the UK into Europe, into Europe, and that, as I understand it, if you're a UK competitor wanting to race in Europe, you need to have all sorts of particular customs forms, etc. Don't you? That's right. And, um, you know, this is something right at the beginning of the year when this flared up and we spoke about it, it was like the big spectre where no one was quite sure what was going to be involved. And potentially one of the options was posting a bond of 40 percent of the value of your car. Oh. And, and it just exactly, you know, you've just chuckled. But I think everyone, when I say that, is mentally thinking, hmm, that's going to add up. But, you know, it's the reality of it. And now we have been using it for a few months. We've had a few race meetings. You know, Monaco springs to mind that a lot of cars went from this country over there. And, you know, the government, you, I, I'm staring at the www.gov.uk website right now. And uh, it says there, you may need permission to temporarily move or export goods outside the UK. For example, an example they give is taking sales samples to a trade show. And then they've got a whole series of bullet points. And right at the bottom, it says personal effects and sports goods. And bizarrely, a race car fits under sports goods. So it's like a pair of trainers, basically. Yeah, but a lot more expensive and nicer to smell. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we all love the smell of a nice historic race car. So basically, yeah, basically, we don't have the free market. We don't have the free movement anymore. So what's required is something called an ATA Carne, C-A-R-N-E-T, to avoid paying duty. That covers a whole host of things. But in particularly for a race car, is what you need to get it abroad. Basically, you're saying that I'm not going to sell it while I'm there. You know, you're avoiding income uh, duties coming into that country. So basically, this is the paperwork you need. And it is just essentially a, a process that we had once before, back years and years and years ago, before we were part of the free trade area. And it's really been a reversion to that. But for a lot of people, it's something they've not had to do for uh, oh, you know two, three decades or whatever. 
but it's one thing you and you and I pontificating about this. But uh, I think you've you've got some information from the horse's mouth. Exactly. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to talk to Martin O'Connor, who's actually doing this process and taking cars to these race meetings. And uh, yeah, I think the reality is possibly slightly different to some of the horror stories we were expecting. And Martin, you've already taken quite a few cars abroad. You've even been to the uh, Grand Prix de Monaco Historique with several cars. So what's the reality of the system? I think the the reality is, is, is similar in some ways, but completely different in others to what people perceive or perceived it to be. Um, when you start looking at it, the, the paperwork and the, the costs and the time frame and everything looks horrendous. And people talk about losing days at border controls and stuff like that but when you the reality of it is is quite different i mean there's there's obviously a cost involved um which is always relative to to the value of what you're taking um so you know it's for our in our game with the historic historic cars you the car night cost will be anything between 750 pound to two or three thousand pound depending on on um what the value of the car is and the value of the equipment and the value of of the parts that you take with you but the reality of the situation is that relative to what you're doing, the cost of the carne is, isn't isn't much. You know, it, even for your normal club racer, you know, you, you're going to go to, you want to go and do a race at Spa. Well, if you have to spend six or seven hundred pounds on a carne, it's not, it's less than the price of a set of tyres or whatever. And the experience, well, if it's if it's not worth six or seven hundred pounds, then it's not worth doing. So from the looking at the carne perspective you know we have done 10 or 12 carnets now for various cars and, and have been to um various events but there's there's time loss is the biggest thing initially is time loss doing the border checks we tried various inland borders and actual borders at dover and portsmouth and the systems now have improved even in the last six months really with uh, well even in the last three months actually with the way that they process the paperwork um and in reality the last one we did coming back from monaco we only lost sort of 15 minutes to half an hour to get five carnets stamped so it isn't it isn't as horrendous as people say the application process was something that most people were worried about but again once you understand the system you've got the templates in place to to make uploading the um uploading the the documents onto the carnet applications and you know how to fill them in. And really, you can, you can, once you've got a list of the items you're taking, the values of the items you're taking and the weights of them, which once you've got that, you can do a car application in an hour. And they're processed and returned within 24. So it isn't anywhere near as bad. I mean, obviously, it's all relative to how many times you use it. Because you, when you do the applications, you get uh, a certain number of transits they call them which is is movement in and out of the country and you can have one or you can have 10 or you can have 20 or you can have as many as you want and obviously the cost it does increase slightly with the number of transits but it's 25 30 pound a go or whatever something silly but obviously the more you, you use it the cost of the carnet per trip is reduced obviously because the first time it's the full price second time it's 50 percent, and it reduces so ultimately if you do two or three races outside the country the carnet cost is minimal um, so, and when you understand the system, the application cost in terms of labor cost or time to do it is, isn't that complicated at all. We have been inspected in the Malay once, um, but not, they don't really seem to be that bothered about looking inside the trucks. I mean, the only complication that gives to us our business really is if there is a time loss. We, we allow generally an extra day for any trip to 
to Europe, particularly going out in case of, of inspections. But the biggest complication it gives us is when you're taking multiple cars, we, we supervise or run 30 plus cars in the period of a year. And um, when you're transporting 30 different cars, you have to be careful with the equipment. The, the equipment and the carnet lists have to be specific to that car. So you, you have to be disciplined in the way you load. You know, if you're taking two trucks with cars, you can't just put the stuff anywhere. You have to put the stuff on the specific truck for the specific car with the carnet list that goes with it. So, but like everything, um, once you've done it a couple of times, really, it isn't a big problem. And and as I say, because the process application is so quick, I mean, we had a panic prior to the Monaco race where on the, the trucks were leaving on the Friday and on the Thursday morning, we had to take some additional stuff. And I did the application at 11 o'clock. I actually did the application on my phone. Sent it in and the paperwork turned up at 8 o'clock the next day. So really, it's about understanding the system. And, and, and it's a system that obviously, as you said, has evolved over the last few months and works. Martin, thank you very much for that insight into how it works. Pleasure to have you with us. And uh, thank you for joining us. So that's it for the Historic Racing News radio show for the first edition in June. Don't miss our regular Insight Special, which will be released on the third Wednesday of every month from here on in. Uh, The June edition will be out on the 16th of June, therefore, and will feature the complete history of the Porsche 917, or the Porsche 917, if you're listening in America, Uh, from the Ugly Duckling 1969 Le Mans prototypes right through to the amazing 91730 Can-Am car and all those brilliant 917K races that appeared, um, not least, of course, those in the in the golf colours, and we, we all love those. So that's going to be our Insight special middle of the month. Then this time next month, first Wednesday in July, we'll have our regular magazine show with all the latest news, views, and plenty of opinions. Uh, we're never short of opinions. Our Historic Racing News Corridor of Power next month will be the greatest circuits of the world. And having seen what what we've been faced with this month, I'm looking forward to that because I think there's going to be a few oddballs coming at me from that one as well. So let us know your thoughts on social media. Be pleased to hear from, from you on that. To Joe Bradley to Jim Roller and Paul Jurd, a very big thank you for taking part in this. Thanks all to, also to uh, Duncan Wiltshire and to Martin O'Connell for giving us their thoughts on the Donington Historic Festival and on the travel, travails of taking a racing car across Europe. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, if you have been, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.